Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, a special extra episode with Ian McEwan, talking about his new novella, The Cockroach, which, as you'll hear, both is and isn't all about Brexit. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. We recorded this conversation with Ian in London. It was the night after the very, very heated Commons debate in which Boris Johnson said one or two things that we're going to refer to that raised the temperature even higher. But we started by talking about just how extraordinarily well-timed this book is. So, you know, I read this on the afternoon of the Supreme Court judgment, which happened in the morning, and it felt like you must have written it in real time. It was uncanny, and there were some really unnerving bits. So as I was reading it, Johnson was responding in New York, where he was, and he said that kind of, I accept what the judges think. And then he went straight into his kind of, but Britain in 2050 is going to be the greenest, funnest, bounciest with flying mm. cars and, and space stations on the moon. Yes. And you have a couple of the, so when you can't have written it as I was reading it, but it felt, when did you write it? I wrote it in August. So how did you know? Well, actually, if you look in Hansard, 26th of July, there's Johnson in a kind of priority statement which I thought I could satirise, but then I realised I couldn't. So I lifted it more or less whole scale. I told the publishers, I said, do you expect any copyright problems? And they said, no. Yes, uh, we're going to be the home of the electric airplane. And we're going to be first in not wrecking our precious planet. And then a list of aspirations. And there was not a single one of them that you could not do without... If you were in the EU, they would not stand in your way. If you want to be the home of the electric battery what's stopping you? And then he gave his United Nations speech, which, did you see it? There was sort of, mm. your mattress will spy on you in your sleep and your fridge will talk to your toothbrush. And again, yeah. I think it's not satirizable. No, I think it's quotable. Damnation via quote is, is the only way with that. I mean, the, the Hansard speech, which I recommend, as Freud said to the Gestapo, to all my friends, was a a very pithy statement of, of of something deeply contradictory. And I think where, where it points us is I no longer hear any economic or even sovereignty arguments for Brexit. We have moved now into the mystic, as Van Morrison might say. <laughs> we're, in, we're in a mystical realm. We must leave because we said we would. We must leave because, 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 because. And so that's why I build that into the conversation that my Prime Minister has with the Chancellor of, of Germany. And, and was there a moment in the last few months, uh, sort of, it came to you that the Kafka story could be turned on its head? Did you have a kind of flash or was it something you'd been thinking about for a while? I drifted into it. I, it was, must have been in July. I thought, well, maybe I can't see any way into Brexit. It just seems too big for fiction, too extraordinary and strange for satire. But then I found myself writing um, a version of the first line of Kafka's Metamorphosis, 
And then I thought, ah, well, I'll play with this for a while. I wrote the first paragraph, and then I thought, well, I'll write a short story. And so I wrote a short story of about 5,000 words. Then I had to go on my travels for machines like me, but it was haunting me the whole time. I thought, maybe this is the way in, something so absurd, just get out of the real, into that zone in which I think many of us feel we're in, where it's, it's so strange, so unpredictable, so compelling. And I can see that w one great division in the country is between those of us who are total junkies for this, who wake every morning, start at six o'clock with the Today programme, read all the press, and those who just say, I can't take any more. And according to polling, the majority yeah. who say, just want it over, just want it over, yeah. don't care, just want it over. It will never be over. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very gloomy about this. The, the idea of a clean break or that we walk away and then it's over, of course, is, is delusional. But I understand that impulse. Uh, and I hear many of those Vox Pops people say, just get on with it. Let's just get out of it. But the language before last night, the language of got to pitchfork this incubus off our back or the Incredible Hulk break the shackles stuff is so puerile. And it's now kind of right in this mainstream of our, of our language about this that when the 11 Supreme Court judges, uh, when Lady Hale delivered the, the judgment, it was a brief respite. It was as if 11 grown-ups had come to collect you from a, one of the rowdiest, most unpleasant seven-year-old birthday parties you were ever at. You know, Take me home, put me to bed. But that was so brief, that little plateau. I punched the air. I even had a little tear in my eye. I thought, God, what a lucid, extraordinarily balanced uh, uh, judgment this is, strong on its historical sense, dignified, and uh, delivered in a language everyone could understand. It was just absolutely a marvellous moment. And then what happens? We're in Parliament and then we're into a punch-up of a, of a new kind. So it was a brief respite. I found myself thinking of another of your books on the day of the Supreme Court judgment. So the Children Act is one of those rare books that deeply humanises a judge. I was trying to think there aren't. I don't think there are many. There's the Jane Gardam Old Filth. Old was, Filth, yes. But it's, yeah, it's mm. actually quite rare to have a judge fully... Mm fleshed out, fully no. humanised. And there were these 11. So Lady Hale is someone that people are now have an interest in. I've, the, I've taken a long interest in her because she was head of the family division. And when we were making the movie of the Children Act, we all crowded into her office. And uh, Emma Thompson, who's going to play the judge, then spent some time sort of shadowing Lady Hale as she went about her business. Emma said, I don't want any old judge. I want a woman. I want a, a lady be with because you know this it is a very male atmosphere the family division is slightly different so I was always in, impressed by her and I'd read one or two of her judgments when I was researching the novel a lot of these judges have very good prose mm. so that was a big moment I think they didn't only deliver a judgment they made law and I think it's a big constitutional moment I think parliament is empowered and I think um looking for an optimistic side of that savage exchange last night and the rowdiness, I think you're seeing a Prime Minister backed against the wall, completely powerless, no majority, and Parliament now, they didn't really come across yesterday, but Parliament is massively empowered by that judgment. So the other 10, the relatively faceless judges about whom we know yeah. very little, but yeah. you could, you know, 
mm. great novelist could flesh them all out. But the contrast between them, about whom we know nothing, and the politicians last night, Johnson, where it's almost impossible. I mean, I don't know whether you can, when you look mm. at it, to imagine. So we've got a novel here which has the insect inside the man, but to imagine what's going on. I mean, can you get inside his head? So when he says the way to honour the memory of Joe Cox well, is to do Brexit, yeah. can you can you get inside his head? I think it's an ill-considered remark. I mean, I guess all of us on our feet, unless we're really... And he'd really, been on his feet for a couple of hours. Yeah, you're bound to say something really profoundly stupid, and that was completely nuts. I mean... In, do you think in, he might think in, it? No. Do you think it's cynical? How... Well, I think he has taken a decision, clearly, somewhere between New York or maybe even while he was in New York, that it's best to tough this out. Everything that goads the opposition is a... Yes, and go over the heads of Parliament to the people. It's Trumpian, boneheaded populism, of course. And the, the difference between that and Lady Hale's judgment or the Supreme Court's judgment She's referring to issues of 1611 and 1688. So we're not only in the present. There's this other dimension, a rich kind of sense that James, as king, is is the government of the time, divine right, etc. So what happened then is of issue, is of consequence. When, for example, in the novel reversalism or it's Brexit parallel has to be got through and they do it by tricking the opposition with a pairing arrangement. When Jim Sams comes back to England and we've got the whole thing through, it's a great success because 40 opposition people are not there for the vote. They're absent in the lobby. When Jim Sams has to justify himself to the BBC, long conversation on Newsnight, he says, well, there's a long, honourable tradition. We don't have a written constitution, but there's a long, honourable tradition of cheating. When I heard the government lawyer, was it Edie or the other one, I can't remember, say on the last day of, the, of, of that hearing, well, other people have prorogued Parliament for political purposes. Uh, John Major did it, someone else did it, someone else did it. And no one actually stood up and said, yeah, but it was wrong. <laughs> he simply said, there's a long, honourable tradition of doing this terrible thing, which is um, silencing Parliament when it suits you. And that's and how I we thought, do things So I thought, country. I punched the air again. I thought, yeah, I got it right with the pairing. You argue that we're a wretched bunch of human beings and we've set up some decent precedents. But to hear that judgment read out aloud in these rather unassuming tones, I was just... Um, Transfixed. It's Brief, the best briefly thing that happened to me in public life for a very long time. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hi, it's Catherine, the producer of the podcast, here to tell you quickly about two live events that we're doing this month. The first one is on the 5th of October, that's a Saturday. We are appearing as part of Politics Live, a day-long podcast and politics festival near King's Cross in London. You can buy a ticket for the whole day or just for us. The second one is on the 16th of October in the evening in Cambridge. It's part of the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. David and Helen will be joined by Aisha Hazarika, stand-up comic, Ed Miliband's ex-right-hand woman full of Westminster punditry and gossip. There'll be beer at that one and some limited edition merchandise to celebrate our third birthday that we might just be giving away. All the information on how to buy a ticket will be in the show notes for this episode. Thanks. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So you mentioned reversalism, which is the, the Brexit substitute. I love it. I'm not going to try and explain it. Just just give us the reversalism pitch. How would you sell it to the people? Well, I can only describe it. So the idea is basically that you reverse the money flow. So you basically you pay for your job. If you have a job at the end of the week, you have to give money to your employer. How do you afford your job? You have to shop. The more you shop, the richer you get. But you cannot hoard money. So if you are, let's say, a hotel you really want to buy the best sheets, the best flowers for the rooms, uh, best furniture. The more you shop, the more money you have. And when you employ musicians, they will be paying you. But you're not allowed to keep that money. So you must expand. So consumer demand goes up inexorably. Oh, yeah. and We can never stop shopping. Parts of the left think, well, that might be rather good for the unemployed. They've got nothing to do all day but shop. And get very rich, they and they don't have to pay. They don't have, to pay, they don't have jobs. to pay for a job. But at one point, you know, the foreign secretary says, "Well, I earn one hundred and forty-one thousand five hundred and ten pounds a year. How can I afford this job? I don't have any time to do any shopping." And one of his colleagues says, "Well, buy a Tesla, or, or two. The trouble with this strangely neglected, um, highly rational form of economics is when you come to trade with other nations. So far uh, in the novel, they've only signed up St. Kitts and Nevis." Basically because, you know, if the Germans are going to send us BMWs and Mercedes, they've got to stuff them with cash. And they seem sort of boneheadedly reluctant to to do that. I was trying to think of something as self-harmingly absurd as Brexit. I'm not sure I succeeded, to be quite honest. Because some people got quite enthusiastic about uh, it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> what I liked about it, it's got a kind of 18th century feel to it. So it's quite Gulliver's Travels. It's sort of, yeah. And also the 18th century, there were some really wacky schemes about money. It's the kind of thing actually you can imagine in the 18th century. But I think in the 18th century, it would be a sort of, insofar as it was a satirical idea, it would be a satire of human folly. It would be kind of, mm. we're, we're all inherently capable of believing this stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, Whereas for yeah. you, it's, it's something that is sort of sold to people. I mean, that's a, the 18th century version, it wouldn't be a democratic satire. It would just be like, we're human, and this is the kind of stuff that humans wind up believing. I mean, the Greeks did have a word for acrasia, passionate um, self-harming certainties. That people get caught up and they come yeah. in a kind of bubble, you know, yeah. the classic 18th um, century bubbles as well. And probably the, great, the greatest of those satires is Swift's modest proposal, um, and those are the shoulders one stands on, I think, when you write political satire. Is... Brexit human folly or is it political folly? Is there something in all of us that's capable of? Well, if you go back just five or six years and we weren't talking about Brexit, uh, except politicians on the on the right, and I know it's been evoked many times, but say go back to 2012 in the few weeks after the Olympics, we were feeling quite good about ourselves. People weren't saying en masse, well, it was a great Olympics, but if only if we were out of the EU, they would have been even better. Um, 
so it's now become a passion. And as I said, it's become religious in tone. I could understand economic self-harm if you were making an argument for sovereignty. But I can't see any arguments for more sovereignty. Take back control is a colossal lie. Every trade deal we're going to do around the world is going to be a compromise with sovereignty. All trade deals are chipping away at your sovereignty. Our membership of NATO is a compromise with sovereignty. The Good Friday Agreement, uh, the Paris Accords, we've got to live among nations. There will be no more sovereignty post-Brexit than there was before it. And we will be going around the world doing deals, diminishing our sovereignty again. People won't have more control over their lives. And the other side of that is that, just forgetting the fact we've already got 70-odd trade deals, getting back there is going to take us 20 years and a lot of political capital. But subsidiarity in the EU and the fact that you've got this extraordinary cluster of diverse nations. I mean, I once went to Slovenia with a friend to do some trout fishing and hiking. We went to the most remote bit, hired a car and drove west. And we were looking for our turn-off, couldn't find it. And then suddenly we realised we were in Austria. And my heart leapt. I thought, wow, how wonderful. Here we are on the Eastern Front. Um, we know less about the savagery in the First World War of the Eastern Front, but everyone there, Italians and Austrians, remember it all too well. And I thought, well, we could actually point our... We could up towards Schleswig-Holstein and go to Sweden, or we could turn left and go to the very southern tip of Spain. And no one would ask to see our passports. What an incredible achievement when you think back to the ruin mid-20th century of Europe. And it's so much more interesting to take a road trip in Europe than it is in the United States, which is so homogenous now, apart from its glorious landscapes. And its but political it, divisions. And its political divisions. So at, at the consumer level or the architectural level, it's, it's, there's nothing to compare with the rich diversity. And Sweden remains Sweden and uh, France remains France. And Britain actually is very much a different place from all of those and still could be a member of the EU. So it does seem to me like a strange and crazy project, but we have to take it very seriously because people voted for it. But no one can remember quite why. With those sort of 18th century manias and, and bubbles, they burst. I mean, that's part of the way the cycle works. And I, I think yeah. with reversalism, possibly there would be a moment where the bubble burst. Do you have any confidence that there will come a point where the illusion Well, um, I'm not so sure it's going to be catastrophic. I think it might well be dreary. And, and drawn out. And the, if there's a, an awakening, it's going to be very, very slow and much contested. I mean, we don't agree with each other on how to describe the present. Others will say we're doing marvellously and others people say, yeah, but what about you know, whatever, waiting lists for hip operations? So I think that'll be a very, very slow process. And yes, one day a centrist party might arise and start negotiating our way back. But I think we'll sort of negotiate our way back by little instances, a mosaic of all the arrangements we have in security, in culture, in science. They'll all be put back. They won't be quite as good as they are now, but they'll go on functioning. On immigration, we need our strawberry pickers. We need uh, the cash cow of foreign students at university. 
we need people to help us out in the health service. And now social care is such a huge issue with so many of us getting older. We'll either take immigrants from the Commonwealth or we'll take them from the EU. You will not see down the, the high street seas of white faces that uh, some, I think, older voters expect to get back to some other time. My guess is, and I probably won't be around to collect any money on this, but it'll be a little more like a kind of plus à change, you know, a little bit drearier, after maybe some bumps in the road, as they call it, if we um, go for a no deal or end up with a no deal. But, you know, a waste of intellectual, political, emotional capital on a scale that uh, is hard to really think of in historical terms. So you mentioned that you you thought of and wrote this book while you were out there talking about Machines Like Me, which yeah. is a great book. It's a great political book, apart from anything else. And we had tried to get you on our podcast to talk about that. A while oh, back. sorry about that. No, and so we can't do the AI conversation. But there are a couple of things I want to ask you that connect yeah. it with this. Right. So it's this great counterfactual. I mean, it's, it's a counterfactual book, both about science, the contingency of science and scientific discovery, but also the contingency of politics. So in this story, Margaret Thatcher loses the Falklands War, and she doesn't resign. She makes her famous I take it on my shoulders speech. And I remember thinking when reading it, I, it's a really interesting question, would she have? Now, we've got a Prime Minister now who I think if he does resign, it'll be for tactical reasons, yes. but it's not going to be for what you might call Lord Carrington reasons. Shame. Yeah. Um, no. This is a straight question. It really started me thinking about it. If Margaret Thatcher had lost the Falklands War, would she not have resigned? Well, when you think... <laughs> how popular it was to send the task force. Most of the country was for it. And we didn't use the word at the time, but myself and all my friends, with one very, very clear exception... Whom uh, you won't name. No, I'm going to name. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> we're all against it. But the country was so overwhelmingly for it that she might well have just gauged that mood and say, we're all to blame. And she takes it on her shoulders for the country. Uh, that was my supposition on that but then staggers on and loses then to tony ben who then yeah as I, a brexiteer takes us i was at that labor party conference the healy ben moment there was a punch-up in the bar in the grand hotel these were in the days when the before the bombing so this is to go back this is plowman's yeah. lunch era your, yes. your great screenplay yes yes yeah so you could go into the bar of the grand hotel and you'd be hanging out with cabinet ministers or shadow cabinet ministers and uh, i remember when the vote came through and Healy had won, there were some very fierce trots in the bar. It was like a sort of Wild West punch-up began, you know, when you have balsa wood banisters and, you know, the piano falls over and, and so on. So it makes uh, the Tom so, Watson stuff look tame. Oh, right? yeah. That's exactly. just... My great dissenting friend, because he always loved a good war, was Christopher Hitchens. Cool. I was going to guess. And he said, no, you've got it all wrong. This is an anti-fascist war. And if we get over there and give them a good hiding and take back the islands, it'll be the end of fascist government. And he was right. If we had lost that war, the junta might still be in place. And then in his time, she definitely should go. Yes. So... <laughs> the joy I mean, of counterfactual history. David, I was trying to write a novel about AI. I know and, you were. And, and, and that's, I would love to have was, that conversation it too. Was, I got into this... Um, what fun it would be, you know, to think about Tony Benn taking us out without a referendum. Yeah, through Re Parliament. Yeah, referendums, plebiscites are for the, th for the Third Reich. 
And I imagine that, yes, uh, my old friend E.P. Thompson might be at his side saying, you know, because he had this little romantic view of a, a Britain, but I think he really meant England, standing alone with a kind of Falstaffian partisan army. We didn't need to be sort of involved in, in anything else. And he was certainly a great um, anti-nuclear campaigner. So, yeah, Mrs. Thatcher comes out of Downing Street. There, Because the Exocets have been armed um, by the French, by two Israelis, murdered by uh, MI6. But so they're smart machines, the Exocets, right? And yeah. In fact, because Turing has put up his um, facial recognition software as open source, this is it's the problems of unintended consequences, the RGs are able to pick off the fleet. And so 3,000 people are dead. The rest of the fleet limps back to a hero's welcome. And the sorrow is enormous. Uh, and Mrs. Thatcher survives, but only for a bit. So thinking counterfactually about the, the Brexit situation, I mean, one of the great puzzles of it is I think we can all see it's so contingent, you know, so many yeah. little things, and yeah. it feels so baked in. I mean, yeah. we're, we're in that nightmarish moment in politics where we all know that the Cleopatra's nose moments are limitless, yeah. and yet we feel completely trapped yeah. by this sort of determined, over-determined present. Can you get out of it and, and get into a counterfactual frame of mind of it? Can you still see the complete contingency of it? Or do you feel like we are now? Just... I think of Schrodinger's cat. You know, the, the cat is both alive and dead until you lift the lid and it's one or the other, and the quantum reality collapses of, of the other thing. And I keep thinking... Could I wake up one morning and find actually I've just been is a dream? You know, this is not where we're going. It's been a perfect storm, a perfect terrible storm. In that we have a Labour leader who was a lever just at a time when we needed some solid opposition, voting with the government right at the beginning to press the button uh, to get the clock ticking on, on calling for it on the day of the morning of the result. First one in, to call for it instead of saying, well. We want to know what your plan is. And this weird trope developed of a card game that dealing with the EU was like playing poker and you mustn't show your hand. So the government was not speaking to us about what it wanted because that was a state secret. The speed with which this was accepted. Meanwhile, the EU was saying, well, here is what we want, this, this and this, especially in Ireland and so on. No hard border, customs union, etc. must remain intact. And uh, it's no cherry picking and so on. We knew exactly where they stood. A good opposition would have said, we want to know where the government stands in this and hold them to account for, and discuss it. And actually, given that the division of the country was quite close on this very foolish process, we could have started off with a much clearer idea of where we were going. Great misfortune to have an ineffectual Prime Minister like Theresa May, who bent with with the right of her party at a point when the country was fairly evenly divided. So those are the shakings of the butterfly wings, I think, in those early points. Of course, we go back to the piece that I can't wait to read that you've written about David Cameron's book. And it does, could, it does ask some of these questions. You could go back further to Blair, who I think is a hand in this, and Gordon Brown, in not allowing seven years to pass before we had migrants from the accession countries. We could have gone with France, Italy and Germany and said, let them raise their economies, 
and it was a very decent EU rule. We might not have had austerity. I mean, anyone who was suffering from wage stagnation and all the rest of it was never going to press the button for the status quo. So there are many butterflies in this. But it's not a dream. It is not a dream, and we can't wake from it either. Imre Kuhn's book is The Cockroach. The other books that we talked about, Machines Like Me, The Children Act, we will tweet the links to those two. We are going to be talking with Helen next week about the article that Ian referred to there, David Cameron's biography and the question of when, why and how the referendum actually happened. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.